Thanks everyone for uh, joining us today. Uh, we have yet another kind of edition of our Path to Becoming a CFO uh, series of uh, interviews. And uh, you know, for many of you who might have attended past ones, you know that uh, we've spoken to a you know, number of fantastic uh, accomplished CFOs. You know, folks, uh, CFOs of Salesforce and Robinhood and Okta and HubSpot and, and many more, right? And uh, that gave us one perspective of the journey uh, to becoming a CFO. We've also done a couple uh, in terms of you know, speaking to executive recruiters to get a sense for how does that process look like, the recruiting process of the CFO. We did one with Alfred Lin to get a board member perspective because uh, you know what I'm trying to do here is to provide that well-rounded view into the stakeholders who also kind of help make uh, a CFO successful, right? And today I am thrilled to have and a, a legend of Silicon Valley, uh, Maynard Webb. And Maynard has a long and, and storied career. He, uh, you know, was uh, the COO of eBay. He's both an operator and a board member now, right? He's currently on, on uh, the board of uh, Salesforce and Visa, two little companies that you might have heard of. But in a, in a past life as an operator, he was the chief operating officer of eBay. Joined them when they were a little over $100 million in revenue, helped them grow to about, I think, four, four and a half billion dollars uh, in revenue. He was at the CEO of LiveOps along the way. He was uh, chairman of the board at uh, Yahoo, doing a lot of ups and downs. So to say that he's been there, done that, and then experienced uh, a lot is an understatement, right? So I could probably spend uh, a good hour just talking about Maynard and, and everything he's accomplished, but uh, I want to make sure that we dive into getting his thoughts on you know, the experience of working with CFOs as an operator, as a CEO, as a board member. And, and uh, so let's jump into that. Maynard, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. It's a pleasure being here. And thank awesome. you for all and, the uh, kind introduction, but did you have to bring up Yahoo? <laughs> <laughs> no, look, uh, you, you no, learned from awesome uh, the challenges, I'm just, right? I'm just teasing. Yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, no, I think uh, you know, I'm sure all of us have been users and, and uh, you know, customers of uh, the Yahoo products in uh, one way or another. It's given us a lot of joy and maybe it didn't end uh, on a high note, but you know, what an amazing journey, right? And uh, so, yeah, now jumping into the uh, discussion about the CFOs and your experience and all of your uh, advice for them, let's start with kind of this topic of just in general, the concept of high performance uh, CFOs, right? And you know, maybe I should start by asking you, you know, you've had the opportunity to work with a lot of CFOs over the course of your career, right? As an operator, as a board member, you have different lenses uh, looking at uh, their performance. So uh, what in, in, in your experience, some of the common patterns that you've seen in uh, some of the high quality CFOs uh, that you work with, right? Well, I've been blessed, honestly, to work with a lot of very, very high quality CEOs and they're very different in personality style sometimes, but the one thing they all have is a great deal of integrity. They certainly have the ability to talk to the street and at the same time have to drive operational excellence inside the company. They have to, it, it, you have to also have nuance with how do you, you know, how do you bring along the rest of the company to get the numbers that you need. How do you deal with a CEO? You know, CEOs have a lot of, and I've worked, uh, you know, I have, I have the, uh, you know, I've been on the Salesforce board 
for 14 years now, and, and Benioff is an amazing CEO, but he's strong. And I had a chance to work with Marissa at Yahoo, who's strong, and, you know, Charlie Scharf at Visa, and, and now Al Kelly. So CEOs tend to be very strong, and CFOs need to be strong, but even more nuanced to make sure they get their job done. Got it. So you, you talked about you know, a lot of the CEOs that you've uh, worked with, right? In, in the good partnerships that you've seen, the CEO-CFO uh, partnership, how do they typically split the responsibilities uh, you know, inside the company and how do CEOs tend to rely on, on CFOs and what do they tend to rely on them for? I think it depends a lot on what the strengths of both of them are. The most traditional thing is that if you're a product-driven uh, CEO, you want to spend a lot of time on the product and less time on investors. But in all cases, once you get to big public companies, you have to spend enough time with investors. So um, uh, uh, I have seen both, and at eBay, you know, I, had to, I worked for Meg Whitman as a COO, and she was fabulous. Our, C our CFO was Rajiv Dutta, who's no longer with us, unfortunately. But he was super strategic and could sell a story and paint the story. Uh, and so Meg loved going to investor meetings with him. They were a tag team. Um, he didn't as much love managing the budget. So I got stuck having to run the budget. I was like, dude, why am I running the budget? I thought you were going to see the boat. But, uh, um, you know, we partnered on it well. But most times the CFO is very good operationally and kind of the adult in the room as well and uh, finds a way to get everybody to behave even if they don't want to, so. Awesome, so you know, the CEO obviously is an important stakeholder, right? That a CFO works with, but so is the rest of the executive team, right? And so what have you seen in terms of uh, uh, the relationship between CFOs and the rest of the executive team among the effective CFOs and how do they think about that? How do they approach that? One of the things you learn as you go up your, in your career, and it sounds like you have a lot of folks that are in finance, which is an awesome profession, but a lot of times, you, all you have to do is please yourself when you're younger in your career and the people on your team. But you realize the higher up you go, you have to collaborate and be an effective teammate across the aisle. And as a CFO, you might have this CEO love you, but if the rest of the people that report to him don't, it's going to be tough sledding. And you're going to have a lot of places. You don't want to have to bring a lot of issues to the CEO to resolve you should be resolving those and you know they don't want to deal with every fight you're interested in having so i used to tell people in you know when i gave career advice it was pick your battles you know do your best to make sure you don't have that many and when you do they better be worth it because it takes energy to resolve them got it and so let's talk a little bit about you know uh, failure modes right and uh, in your experience, as you look back, uh, what are the maybe you know, typical failure modes for CFOs? Maybe the answer is different for uh, you know, smaller companies, early stage companies, and, and very large public companies. Maybe we could uh, talk about the public company CFO failure modes first and then 
come to uh, the smaller companies and what in your experience as typically leads to that not being a good fit anymore or you recommending as a board member something is off here and and uh, you know is that uh, something you can talk a little bit about actually um, I haven't seen many CFO failures first of all in small companies you usually don't have a CFO until you get a little further along and then yep. um, sometimes if a new CEO comes in, uh, the old CFO, you know, it's, it's the old CFO often stays and helps the new CEO. I've seen more CEO transitions, honestly, than I've seen CFO transitions. Um, and often, I'll give you an example of a great uh, CFO that I worked with, I helped recruit him at eBay was Bob Swan. And, you know, they had a he, he became the CEO at Intel acting and now he's the they love him so much he's the CEO so I think there's uh, it's I've seen as I said I've seen more CEO transitions than CFO transitions what I do would say is um, and if you have a CEO transition you might you know it's a, a lot of it is not about skill as much as it is about uh, chemistry between a CEO and a CFO um, and how that works. And so how is, you know, how's everything going? Plus you might actually have, um, you've had a couple of rows of CFOs at Salesforce. Uh, Mark Harkins is amazing. Um, and he's had a long run, but some of the other CFOs just had done so well, they wanted to retire or move on to something else. So that's, that's what I've seen happen more than anything else. Got it. And uh, you talked about you know, Bob Swan and how he was able to make that transition from a CFO role to a CEO role. Uh, how often have you seen that happen? Like do CFOs usually get that shot at becoming a CEO? And what in your experience uh, uh, sets apart the people who do get that shot to you know, go from a CFO role to a CEO? Right. Well, I think what sets Bob apart is Bob has a deep understanding. He's an operator. And he, you know, grew up in GE and has a deep understanding of business. He's very collaborative. He's very strategic. Um, and I think that just shines. Uh, I think that sometimes the CFO is in a great position to become the next CEO because they're, the, as I said earlier, they're the adults in the room and they've got the calm hand at the tiller when things are going uh, well. But I wouldn't say it's the number one path. It depends on what your board is looking for and what your company needs, you know? Uh, Got it. And then hopefully you're not making a CEO transition. It's much better not to have to worry about that because things are going really, really well. Yep. And, and speaking of, uh, uh, you know, what companies are looking for, uh, you know, maybe we can shift focus a little bit to the uh, CFO recruiting process. Right, because you've been on a lot of boards, I'm assuming on committees which uh, interview CFOs when, when the recruiting happens. Uh, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on, uh, maybe when you're hiring a CFO uh, for a public company, right? Uh, how does it work? Do you typically, because it's, if you're a public company, you already have a fairly large uh, uh, finance and accounting organization mm -hmm. already, right? So do you typically try to find a CFO that complements the team that already exists or is it more about, hey, just find the best candidate and let them then come in and shape the team around them and how does that typically work? 
I think in finance, more than most functions, it's been interesting to see, first of all, the best of all worlds is that you have a strong enough team and a deep enough bench that you don't have to do outside recruiting, that you have so many strong people willing to, to come in. It's a, a, you're losing your best talent because there's no slot open. For example, Sarah Fryer, who's got a great career, she was a high flyer in the finance organization at Salesforce, but we had a CFO, and so she went somewhere else and now has got a great job. And that's what you kind of want to have more in your career is so much talent that you don't have to go outside. But if what I've seen, and I mean this, more in the finance function than others, is when you bring in a new person, um, I had this Ken Goldman's a dear friend of mine, and when he came in as a CFO at Yahoo, everybody was kind of expecting that there'd be big changes for folks reporting to him, but not he he worked. I, I think there were maybe one or two, but mostly the same team came in. Uh, same with Mark Hawkins when he came in. Uh, there was a good team, and um, most of them are still at at Salesforce. So. Um, I, but it, you know, when you have a new CEO or when I was a CIO or a COO, I often had a, you know, a different team over time, but you, you kind of feather that in, but the best answer is really not to need to hire from outside or someone new and, you know, if you can. Got it. Got it. And so also during the interview process itself, right, as a board member, when you are evaluating the CFO candidate and you're interviewing them, uh, you know, what exactly are you looking for? And I'm assuming by the time, you know, people come to you, their technical skills have been bettered and all of that has already been done and you're not really focused on, on any of that, right? So what is your evaluation look like in, and, uh, you know, what are you trying to find out about the CFO? I'm trying to find out a lot, frankly. Um, which is why does everybody else like him or her, you know? And by the way, um, one of my favorite CFOs that I work with, who I get to serve with on the Salesforce board is Robin Washington. And she's amazing. She was the CFO for us when I was on the Hyperion board. And uh, she had everything. She was uh, operationally excellent. She didn't she got everybody excited to work with her and for her so i'm kind of looking when i do an interview why does it why is this person the right fit for where we are now and what will be different what will they bring what will we have to worry about like you know the truth is there's no one candidate that is a perfect answer for everything so i'm always looking to find out you know are we are, are our eyes open enough? How willing is this person to talk about what they're not good at and how they've solved that? Um, so I always generally ask somebody in an interview like that is okay, so everybody loves you now, but I'm going to know you a lot better in six months. And what I'm, I'm going to ask you now, what, what are you going to, what am I going to learn about you in six months that you should tell me about now? What will I love and what will I not love? So I'm looking for candor and integrity. I'm looking for 
capability to do the job. I'm looking for somebody that will make the company far better, uh, no matter how good our uh, you know previous person was. Uh, so I'm just exploring all of that. Got it. And as part of that evaluation criteria, is the fact that someone has done the job before or not, does that factor into that decision-making process? And in your experience, because everybody has to get that first shot at being a CFO, right? And in, does that ever happen in public companies uh, or is that too great a risk that you're always going for somebody who's done the job before? And because every public company it's CFO a, became, it's, it's, became a public company CFO for the first time at some point, right? And so how do you think about that dynamic? Yeah, well, look, I, I have a great love and affection for people growing in their careers, quite frankly. I think the, the, the most free resource we all have is our own potential. And the more we work on it, the more we can do. And I got passed over early in my career, even though I was acting as a CIO, um, and it was going beautifully and, and my organization loved it, but my boss was very nervous about the fact that I had not been a CIO before and they hired somebody that had done it before, um, like four times and you should ask if they've done it before four times, why are they not doing a bigger job? But they forgot to ask that question. Um, and um, any short, short story, but he got fired when, a year and they promoted me and decided I was ready now or whatever. Uh, so I always am fighting for people to get, you know, to grow in their career. But I would tell you, it's a different job. Like going from building a competency as a functional head to being a sweet seat, sweet leader with multiple constituencies, including the street, and the executive staff and the board is uh, an order of magnitude different. And so it is safer, uh, maybe, for the board to say, oh, yes, it'd be great if you can check the box and somebody says they've had an awesome run, but you also have to know what were their circumstances. Was the wind at their back? Was the company growing? Like it's, you can be a great CFO for uh, a company that's growing. Uh, virally and you're trying to catch up and you can have tough sledding with the street and other things if your company's and having a tougher time. So you have to understand what they were up against when they were doing the job. But I would say I, I would be, I would say it's if you could have um, a candidate that had great experience, had been internal and had been a CFO, that's a natural step up. But I, I wouldn't, as you said, everybody has to get their first shot sometime. And the best way to do that is to uh, volunteer, show how much you can do, you know, while you have your job and um, hopefully continue to grow. Not with sharp elbows, you know, not trying to uh, knock everybody else out of contention, but be collaborative and do more than you're ever asked to, to do. And, I, I can tell you that in my career, I've been rewarded for that um, handsomely. Yeah, so try to do the job you want and not the job you have, right? Yeah. Awesome. So let's, let's you know, talk a little bit about the process of working with, uh, with the board, right? And, and 
um, you know, I think you've covered a little bit of this already, but uh, maybe a slightly different angle to it is that as a board member, right, what is the first and foremost thing you are looking for from a CFO? And, you know, maybe during board meetings itself, or maybe, uh, you know, during the day-to-day -day operation, what is the expectation that any given board member has of that CFO and, and uh, what are you looking for? I'm looking for True North when I talk to the CFO. I like, I'm not looking for the company line and the spin on whatever anything's happening. I can, I can promise you when you become a board member and you're on the other side of the table, it's a different view than what you have where the CEO is talking and everybody's shaking their head and agreeing with them. And um, we, we agree with a lot of our CEOs as well, but you're expected to be representing shareholders and applying judgment. And so I'm looking for candor more than anything else about what's working and what's not. What are they worried about? Uh, what can we do to help them? Um, although that's, you know, I'm, they have to be true north for me, you know. Got it. And so I guess the later question is on what builds confidence, right? And what, you know, over progressively over time and spend more time uh, uh, you know, with a CFO on as a board member, as you look back on it, what, pro sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say it's super easy. Uh, am I having to probe and find issues or are you bringing them up and telling me about them before we get surprised? Surprises are not a good thing uh, for boards. And so highlighting all, you know, what the risk could be, how you're mitigating those risks, um, without terrifying, like you can't leave your board in a puddle because there's no shortage of opportunities for problems. We all get that. But being honest about where you are and what you're doing and, you know, how we can help is, is super important. Surprises are not a, a big thing. And then when you do have a problem or an issue, and there's no shortage of those, even in amazingly successful companies, um, how do you handle it? And are you getting the right resources on it? Do we have to actually insert to, to help you or not? Got it. And before I uh, you know, ask uh, my other questions, I want to remind everybody that you know, if you have questions for uh, Maynard, uh, now's a good time. There's a Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom window, and you should go ahead and uh, ask your questions. And uh, all right, so continuing, uh, Maynard, uh, you know, when we were having our prep call, you mentioned that you're on lots of audit committees, right? And where you have to work closely with the CFOs and other members of the finance and accounting teams uh, uh, in those companies. Uh, so what are you looking for as a board member in that capacity? You're on the audit committee and what does that interaction look like? I'm sure there are a lot of people in the audience who haven't been in that position in the room in a public company, working with an audit committee of a public company board. What does that look like and, and uh, what is the experience for you and, and kind of what is the expectation from uh, uh, the team? Well, I love meeting the team, you know, and oftentimes when you're in the audit committee, you meet many of the key finance leaders because you're talking about what you're doing with your, you know, the dollars you have on your balance sheet. You're talking about what's your tax profile. You're talking about your, your uh, chief accounting officer and 
if we're doing M&A, you're talking to somebody. So you get to see a broad spectrum of folks. And many times, um, sometimes people get to the board and they're so excited to be at the board, they forget that one of the things the board's supposed to do is engage. And so they'll come in and they have a 30 minute, and there's never enough time in the board meeting to fit everything in. And so somebody will be so excited, they've got a 30 minute slot to present to the board and they have a deck that would take 45 minutes. And they forget that, you know, we want to talk too, and we want to ask questions. Uh, so that's fascinating. <clears throat> and you actually get to see people. And when the board's looking at you, the board only gets to look at you six or seven times a year. They don't get to see you every day. And so even if you want to tell them everything you'd like to have them know about how great a job you're doing, you've got to figure out how to communicate what they want in about half the time you think and leave time for dialogue for the rest of that time. And you also, they'll remember all the interactions and they'll probably have many of them, but you want to leave them with a good impression of that you have potential and that you could do a lot of other things and that you're not defensive when they ask a question. One of the things I hear a lot is, which I always know is not quite true, but sometimes people are trying to be nice to board members and are like, oh, that's a great question. You know? <laughs> you're smart, I have, but, but uh, you hear and see a lot. I would just encourage people if you're presenting to the board to be genuine, it's a chance for you to shine, to show ability beyond what your base, you know, what your job is today. So don't don't forget that you have a rare opportunity if you're presenting the boards regularly. Awesome. So uh, and and you know, speaking of uh, you know, you know the high pressure situations in boards and and uh, you know presenting yourself well to the board. Let's talk a little bit about you know corporate governance, right? And that has been uh, uh, that's been in the news a little bit over the last say, year. Uh, or two, uh, we've seen what happened at uh, WeWork and, and their failed uh, IPO. We've seen cases like Theranos and, and things like that. But you know, how do you view a CFO's responsibility? Of course, a CEO has a massive role to play in, in uh, situations, situations like that. But uh, what do you think is a CFO's responsibility in establishing, you know, good reliable governance structures and making sure that companies don't end up in that situation you know uh, is it all on the ceo how much of it is on on the on the cfo well hopefully it's on the entire exec staff and it's certainly on the board because we have to sign off on all the controls and that they're effective and ask questions if 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 they're not uh, the cfo I said it earlier, it's true north. I mean, they have to have all the governance and the compliance things be front and center for them and for their teams. Um, and the CEO definitely should want that. Both the CEO and CFO have to personally attest to the accuracy of the financial results, you know, with criminal penalties. So hopefully they're serious about it. And I know all of us are serious about it. So, so you haven't just served on 
large public company boards, right? Companies that are worth hundreds of billions of dollars. That's a whole level of kind of uh, responsibility and challenge. But you've also been on lots of smaller private company boards, AdMob and and you know, companies like that, right? Which was acquired by uh, Google. So, uh, you know, in, in, in those kinds of companies, when you are at a scale where there is a CFO uh, in the room, does the board tend to look at a CFO as you're the adult in the room? Like, I guess what I heard you say is that, no, you want every executive to be the adult in the room and not, not just the CFO, well, but does the CFO have a special responsibility there? In younger companies, without a doubt, especially if you've got a CEO, uh, who's never been a CEO before, that's never been in a, in a growing company, they need somebody that understands what, what the rules are, right? And the game, and, and, and you also need to know how close to the line, because there's judgment applied in every, you know, what, what's allowed, what's not allowed. You know, there, if you break a law, that's pretty clear. But if you decide to apply judgment and it gets close to the line, how do you deal with that? And I always try to make sure on the boards I'm on that I don't want, like we don't want to live anywhere near that line. We want to be, you, you operate in a much better place when you're safely above any dangerous territory. Benioff says this best when he says, trust is our number one value. You know, we want to be the most trusted person on the planet and the most trusted company. And I think that's, I do agree that uh, the CFO role, more, more than most, is expected to do that. Got it. Great. So I'm going to jump into some audience questions that are coming in. If you have uh, any, please uh, go ahead, Q&A button at the bottom of the Zoom window. Maybe I can start by asking you, uh, this, is, this is a uh, you know, good question, Maynard. So how do you balance being transparent, candid with the board about future risks and challenges in the company without really exposing or calling out uh, the CEO and, and other executive uh, uh, you know, members, right? And you know, if, if, if you see a situation where there's not, the right investments are not being made, or if you feel like the appropriate planning is not happening, how do you communicate that to the board in a responsible way without alienating or calling out your, your uh, partners, right? That's a very good question. I'll throw that back on what I said earlier about good questions. Um, I would do that without, I would not surprise my CEO any more than I'd want to surprise my board or any other colleague. I would make sure that anything I was going to say, if I knew ahead of time that I was going to be asked something or I was going to say something, I would make sure that my peer or my CEO knew that I was going to bring that up and how I would approach that. Now, in a boardroom, you might get asked questions in a five hour audit committee meeting that you didn't, uh, and we often have private sessions with just to see FO as well, where he gets to tell us. And sometimes he'll say, This is, I'm just, um, he or she might say, I'm just sharing this with you. I will deal with it. And sometimes it's like, well, I could use help on it as well. So there is a mechanism for CFOs to speak openly and privately with the board, um, but they don't usually bring up things that are about, you know, the CEO is driving me crazy or things like that. So that's not uh, what comes up there. It's usually about their teams or things they're going to do. They're thinking about with their organization. Um, but if you're in a board meeting, and you say something 
that was unexpected, you should go make sure that whoever you said that about hears it, here's the context, and make sure that's how you build trust. You know, I say in every interaction with somebody, you're either gaining trust or losing trust with that person. So, um, you know, um, just be conscious of that. So don't tell, I, I, you need to tell the board the truth, but you also need to make sure if you're uh, doing that and it could be inconvenient or harmful for somebody else that they hear that as well. Got it. Great. So uh, here's another one, which is about the profile of the typical CFO uh, nowadays, right? So, uh, you know, we have had CFOs come from all kinds of backgrounds, investment banking and uh, accounting, and then some VCs have gone on to become CFOs, um, you know, all kinds of different uh, uh, experiences and backgrounds, right? So what is your experience been? And if you look back and kind of try to do that pattern matching, uh, do you care one way or the other, and do people bring strength uh, one way or the other, depending on whether they come from that audit uh, accounting kind of background or investment banking kind of background? Um, I think they're different. Like, I, I, the question for me is if you come from more of a strategic investment banking background, do you have the wherewithal to actually build the operational muscle that the company really needs? And if you have all the accounting and operational muscle, do you have the strategic health to manage the street and sell investors on your vision and the company? And so you really have to have both capabilities when you're, and, and probably more, when you're the, uh, the CFO. So I don't really care where I, I don't have a preference for one versus the other, but I need to know that you can do both and have and and why would I believe that you can do both? Got it. And uh, here's another one, which is about if you're thinking about a long term career in finance and operations, uh, what kind of experience do you recommend people focus on, right? So there is a, is there a specific type of business or industry, B2B versus B2C, or is it more about, uh, you know, experiences with good teams uh, and, and strong companies? And how do you, you've done so many different kinds of uh, businesses, right? And you have experience with B2C and marketplaces and B2B and you're on, on boards of those companies. And so a lot of diverse uh, experience. So uh, you know, what has allowed you to be successful in, in lot of those different uh, kinds of businesses and how should somebody who is uh, uh, in the early part of their career think about making those choices, uh, you know, if they want to maybe end up where you are? Well, I hope you end up much better off than where I am. Um, I, I, early in my career, um, I would just volunteer endlessly for anything uh, that I wanted to do. Probably my first transformational job was working as what would now be a CISO kind of person in computer security. But back in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, it was a very unpopular job that nobody wanted to do. But I knew that I could build a good career if I did it. And I would go to my boss every week in our one-on-one and I'd say, that job's empty. I'll do it. He's like, you've got a job. I said, 
I'll do that. I'll do my job. I'll do that as extra credit. Get out of here, Webb. You're, you know, you're bugging me. And, you know, the job would sit open and I keep telling him. And finally, somebody from corporate came down and said, give that Webb kid a chance. Maybe he'll do well. And then it went really, really well. Uh, and so I'm forever grateful for somebody to give me a chance. But I think you have to have curiosity and you have to be willing to do something. You know, there's nothing, you're, you're, you're not, you have all these great colleagues that are in your departments, all of whom are super capable. But you have to do something that rises above the fray. You're not gonna just get discovered. You're not gonna just, you know, hopefully your bosses will discover you. But I would never leave my career in the hands of my boss. I'd want to make sure that I was doing things to grow and get new experiences. A lot of times, traditionally, people tell you get an international assignment, do something. And if you're a finance person and you're great in accounting, do something where you're working with the business in some form or fashion. So just different experiences to broaden your perspective. I, I think being on boards, by the way, as a finance person, you get a lot more, every board has to have one of you on it. That's called the audit committee chair. Most, most places you don't get to say you get to be a board member. Uh, so, but you guys, you both guys and girls have a great opportunity to be on boards. And I promise you, whether it's a small company or a big company, you will learn a lot by being on the other side of the table and hear a lot. And so just constantly learn, push yourself, never be satisfied. Don't be a problem to manage. I mean, don't try not to be what I was to my boss when I showed up every week. It's that young kid that said, uh, put, me in, put me in coach, I'm willing to play. Uh, I, I think they probably liked the enthusiasm, but they probably were annoyed having me in every week. So don't be a problem to manage, but push yourself and volunteer for things that look different, difficult. And when you get a chance to do them, don't mess it up, right? Because uh, people are people need things to work. Awesome. Here's another one about team building, right? So how do you think about building, uh, you know, really effective teams? And I, I guess a related question to that is as the company is scaling. Uh, you were you went through that. I don't know when you joined eBay. There were a couple of hundred employees, and then twelve thousand by the time you left, or something like that. So clearly, you know that company had to evolve uh, very quickly, right? And how do you think about the decision making process? Early days, it tends to be very top down, small company. But yeah. then you have to kind of make uh, you know sure that decision making is happening in a more decentralized way as the company is scaling. Uh, how do you think about that team building and uh, how decision-making evolves uh, as a business case? Well, I think about it from a values standpoint first. You know, like what, what, are, what is the way we're going to operate? And how do I make sure that that's explicit and bought into? And when I first started at eBay, people were really upset that we had grown so much. And there were so few people there. And I had come from Gateway where I had, you know, several thousand folks working for me. And I was like, well, and they, they were like, I wish it were like it was before the IPO when there were only three of us. I said, you would hate your stock price, trust me. I said, we're gonna have thousands of us. So the goal is to how to make it feel 
like there's three of us here. And that means we're going to have to do some things differently. Um, and so you just work on setting the picture of the future versus where the past is. And then as far as scaling, it's a constant um, thing to look at and say, what's working? What's not? Can I predict? Um, I used to sit down with Meg and we would go through the org and predict where the next a break was going to come because we were growing so fast that something that was in good shape would quickly get lapped. And predicting that before it actually happened gives you time to fix it. And we also had areas that we thought were going to get lapped and the leaders rose, you know, for much longer than we, we had expected them to. So I think you have to constantly be monitoring what's working, what's going to work, when will it break? What do I do when it breaks? What are my other options? How do I make sure that I stay ahead of it? Because I joined eBay when it was broken and we had CNN in the parking lot filming. I, I promise you, that's not what you want. Uh, so when you get it to a place where it's safe, how do you stay there and how do you make those tweaks uh, going forward? And usually you have to change behavior. So things that Meg and I did naturally like jump on every problem and you know act like we were the smartest person in the room for solving it, which we never were. Meg might have been, but not me. Um, uh, that didn't go so well when you had several thousand people or 10,000 people on the team. They wanted to be solving those problems. So we had to consciously let go and frame more and discuss more. So at every, every step of the way, you're figuring out what to start? What you need to start doing that you didn't have to do before? What do you stop doing that used to be great but is now holding you back? But what do you continue to take with you, right? What are those things that you have to take with you as you grow? And that's hard to figure out which of those things it is, but that's where the magic is. Got it. And I, I'm sorry, it's just a, a point that I care a lot about. The other thing is that I've used is help the team understand what great really looks like. As humans, we're, we all think we're wonderful for the most part, you know, hopefully. And often I've picked up a team that is doing far better than what they used to do. And they will say, yeah, that's awesome. And that's great. And I will say, I don't know if it is or not. What, who are the best in the world at it? And what do they do? And if they don't know that answer, I, you know, I go out with them to try to find out that answer because it's all about making sure that you're aiming high enough for what greatness is, especially if you're trying to scale. Awesome. So here's a slightly related question to something that we talked about earlier in terms of uh, relative uh, strengths and backgrounds of people, right? Investment banking or strategy, and that's one, and the other one is the control accounting those aspects of it. So this is more about if somebody knows that they are much stronger in one or the other, in this specific case, uh, you know, it's about uh, having a more strategic background, but they know that they need a strong controller next to them uh, who can bring that bit into the company. What's the best way to communicate that to the CEO or the board without losing the trust and confidence in your ability, right? In that case, hopefully, it would be communicated during the interview process, right? You, you, you don't want us finding out that that's not a strength 
after you're in the job. So uh, the people that are self-aware enough, which most CFOs are, would say that to you in the interview process. You know, that, look, if I did this, hopefully we have a great chief accounting officer. And that's amazing because that's not, you know, what I have, right? Um, but I know enough that if, you know, I know enough that if for whatever reason I don't, have a great chief accounting officer. I know I can get one and I, I have a good reputation and I have a good network. So you won't have to worry about it, but I'm just being open with you about what I'm good at and what I'm not, or what I'm great at and what right. I'm not. So here's a, here's a good uh, question about uh, managing issues with uh, gender equality at the board level, right? And how do you do it? And I'm assuming gender equality refers to ultimately uh, from a pay perspective, from an opportunity perspective, and you know you could you could uh, think about it in, in different ways. But uh, how do you, as maybe uh, you know, uh, you're on the Salesforce's board and Visa's board and and other uh, companies, how how do boards think about that? Yeah, I can tell you what I do as an investor first, which is where I spend a lot of my daytime is when I'm actually deciding to invest in a company, even a very early stage company, I ask about what they're doing on this topic and what they're going to do to make sure they hire a diverse team and early because if you don't uh, get it early, it gets, it gets harder the further along you go. On the board, I happen to work for a couple of fabulous companies who believe very strongly in this and we get to watch metrics on pay versus for against all kinds of classes and we also get to challenge on diversity all the way through but the companies that i'm currently on the board of lead in this dimension and they are nobody's ever done but there's more to do but we don't you know we 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 can just help keep the pressure on, on looking at that, right? Um, I think it takes diligence and time and energy every day, and you're never really done on this, and you can't just say it's hard, right? It, it Got it. matter that it's hard. We have to, we have to get it right. Yeah, never ends. And uh, all right, so I'm going to end, Maynard, with, uh, uh, you know, a, a question about learning, right? And uh, maybe this question was a little bit more focused towards learning for CFOs, but I'm not sure if you have a perspective on that. If you if you do, you should share. But I would I'm curious myself to know uh, how do you think about self improvement and continuous learning and and uh, you know finding mentors and uh, what is your go to? Right? Are, are you the systematic kind where you're like, hey, you identify a gap and you say, I'm going to go read all the best books in that area and become better at it. Or I'm going to go find the smartest people and I'm going to talk to them and, and I'm going to make myself smarter. What is your approach to kind of improving and continuous learning and getting better at things? And how have you uh, typically done that? And, and is there a, a maybe specific angle to CFOs that, that you've seen the successful ones do? Well, I think that continuous learning is really, really important. And I think if I were a CFO, I'd want to know who I admire. Like, the, who do I think are the best CFOs on the planet and why? And understand why. 
And I and and then who could I learn from? You know, and I'd be and you can learn from people that I learn more from people working for me than I do from some visionary that was doing it before. But back in my career when I was a CIO, I knew that there was no one else in my company that was the CIO. So um, I was going to have to learn a lot about what that really meant. And so I built a database of like over 400 names of the, the top the people that I read about. And then I went out and met as many of them as I could to just learn. And some of them did things that I would not have done. And some of them did things beyond anything I thought I could, but I got to, I got to just continually watch and learn what their secret sauce was. And I tried to develop my secret sauce consciously on what, you know, what was I going to build my brand and my reputation about. And I would recommend that everybody with your career thinks about it that way, that you, you have a brand. What is somebody going to say about you when you're not in the room? You know, how, why is somebody going to pick up the phone and say, I've got to hire you tomorrow? Who's going to know? Does anybody know you're even out there as good as you are? All those things are important for you to, to know. And by the same time, you just can't go out and get on social media and say, I'm wonderful every day. You know, <laughs> like uh, it's, it's this nuance, but you own, you, you, no one is in charge of your career. No one's going to care about your career more than you do. So you own your brand, you own your reputation, you own making sure that you're aiming high enough and that you're pushing yourself enough and that you're working someplace that sees your potential. That's what my Awesome. Is. Now that's great. And, and uh, you know, where would uh, social media be if people weren't getting on and saying they're awesome all day long? <laughs> that's what <laughs> it's for, right? And so, Mina, this has been amazing. Thank you so much uh, for uh, joining us today. I'm sure that uh, I know that I took away a lot of uh, amazing wisdom, and I'm sure all of our attendees did too. And uh, hopefully, we can uh, you know do this sometime again soon. Thank you. It was my pleasure, and good luck to all of you all in your careers. Bye bye. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye.